So this morning, let's go. Uh, we'll be in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. For those of you that have not met me, my, my name is Michael. Um, I'm the lead pastor here at Connection Church Savannah. And we are currently in a series going through 1 Corinthians where we are calling this series Undivided. Um, Today, I just want to kind of give a disclaimer. If you have children um, in, in the auditorium with you this morning, I just want to just go ahead and give you uh, just a disclaimer that we're going to be dealing with some adult thing topics today. Um, and it's probably going to be worse than chapter five was. And so um, if you have children that, that you're not ready to have those types of conversations with yet, then now would be a perfect time to acquaint yourself with uh, our Connection Kids ministry. Um, you know, we teach your kids about the gospel, and it's never a babysitting um, never a babysitting service for you. It's, we teach them the gospel and how to love Jesus better, right? All right, so speak now, forever hold your peace. I warned you, we're good to go. Okay. All right, so as we look at 1 Corinthians, you guys have known, you've been, if you've been here a while, you know that the, the center message, the central question um, in this book is what message does our lives together as the church speak to those around us in the world? What message is your life speaking to the people that you are doing life with and around? What message do our marriages speak in, our, in the, the people that we're doing life in and through and around, guys? And that's kind of the topic we're going to be talking about today is marriage and singleness. And what Paul has done for the last six or seven chapters is he's shown us as the church how we are called to live together. How we're called to live together and relate to one another in a way that points the world to Jesus. That has to be the central focus of everything we do. And like many churches today, as you can see and you know, the way that the Corinthians were living in their, amongst their culture wasn't aligning with the gospel that they had claimed to believe. And so this is the backdrop of what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. And so what he's trying to show them and what he's trying to show us is that the gospel brings us together around a common mission of seeing God's glory reach all peoples. All people in all the world, that every person would hear and have access to the hope of the gospel. And that starts with how we live among the world as the church. The, the world should be able to look at the church and see something supernatural happening within its walls and amongst its people. Right. And so as we look at this today, have that as the backdrop in your mind. And so today, we're going to look at chapter 7. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and do that. We have to remember something. We have to remember that Paul, we talked about this in week one, Paul is calling the Corinthians to look at marriage through the lens of the gospel. He's calling them to look at your marriage, look at your life of singleness, wherever your life finds you at today, look at your life through the lens of the gospel. Whatever, whatever relational status you have today, look at it through the lens of the gospel. And remember, every chapter we've looked at so far, every issue that we're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians, what, what the Corinthians were facing, Paul is going to have a common suggestion and a common remedy. Look to the gospel as your standard. Look through, look at, look for every issue. Look to the gospel for your example. So, for example, when we're looking at the topic of marriage or singleness, are our marriage, our marriages, or is our singleness, is it proclaiming Christ to those who are watching, or is it discontentment and those types of things? And so, what you've seen so far, <clears throat> up to this point. Paul's been dealing with unrepentant sin in the Corinthian church. We saw divisions in the church. We saw factions in the church. We saw, um, we saw incest in the church. We saw sexual morality in the church. All these weird stuff that was happening that, that makes us think that, that you know, they, they may not be Christians, but they were, and they were living in a church trying to fight the worldliness in their hearts. And, and today, what we're going to see, we're going to see Paul kind of transition um, for the next couple of chapters, and he's going to start answering specific questions about some 
topics that the Corinthian church had written him about uh, for, for questions on, on marriage or questions on spiritual gifts, questions on food that has been sacrificed to idols. Do they have freedom to eat those things? That's a very cultural question that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. And then in the very end, you're going to see them ask questions about a, a, an offering that they took up for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And so, and as we study 1 Corinthians 7 today, please do this. Keep in mind that Paul is replying to specific questions. So the church had written him questions, and Paul is replying to these specific questions. He's not spelling out a complete theology of marriage in this chapter, okay? He's not, he's not, he's not spelling out a, a theology of marriage in this chapter, but he's giving helpful, practical, applicable steps in how to use your marriage to magnify Christ. Do you see that? So remember that today. So an important note, we're going to look at it in a moment in 1 Corinthians 7. You're going to see Paul, you're going to see him say two or three things. Um, like, I, I give this as a command, not I, but the Lord. You see him say things like, I say this as a concession, not a command. If you've read this week, then you know that's in there, right? And you're like, what does that mean? Is he just giving his, his opinion? All those types? That's not what he's doing. Paul isn't disclaiming divine inspiration for what he's writing. He's not saying this is not the word of God. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's referring to what Jesus taught when he was on earth. And so what you see is Paul had, had to answer some questions that Jesus never really delved into. He never, he never had to discuss while he was on earth. But when, when a question arose that the Lord had dealt with, Paul referred to his words and not his own. You see that? And that's what we should do as well. And so Paul's explaining, he's explaining that God's will to Christians in marriage and in singleness, and he challenges the Corinthians to live out their lives on earth, whether single or married, in light of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And that's the heart behind everything we're doing today. And so uh, for whoever may be single in this room this morning, don't check out because I'm coming for you in a minute, okay? Don't check out because we're coming for you too. So um, let me pray for you, and then we're going to jump in. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. God, you're good. Um, Lord, we're thankful for your love. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. God, we thank you for the resurrection. I pray, Father, every heart in this room would be focused on that. God, I pray that this message would, would be um, just penetrate our hearts. God, the word would penetrate our hearts and change us. God, that this, this message would be about no man but about your glory. God, I pray that you would receive glory and, and honor. Father, I pray that we would look to you. God, I pray that we would submit to you and we would submit our lives to see your kingdom come and your will be done. And I pray that, God, that you would see us through as we have a vision to see your church move forward, God. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, anybody know about Henry Ford? Anybody know that Henry Ford was the founder of Ford Motor Company, right? Um, Whenever Mr. and Mrs. Henry Ford celebrated their golden anniversary, um, a reporter asked them, he says, to what do you attribute your 50 years of successful married life? And he said, the formula. And the, the guy was like, what? He says, the, for, the same formula I have always used in making cars. Just stick to one model. And so as you look at that, my heart is this, is that you would see, like, I, most, my, I would say probably most of us are married in this room. Um, when I first got married, I, I had these rose-colored glasses that I thought it was supposed to be all butterflies and rainbows all the time, right? And that it was going to be glorious, and it was to serve me and to make me look good and all these things. And I've forgotten my experience of reading the Word when I was called. I'm called to serve, and I'm called to give my life, and I'm called to sacrifice. And I didn't want to talk about that until I was faced with some very big issues in my marriage where I had served myself and not my wife. And so many times we do that in our culture because one thing I've learned and noticed, and I've had conversations with people this week because this is a heavy topic. Chapter seven is a big deal. It's going to rub some of us the wrong way today. I, I can tell you that right now. Thank God some of you don't have my email, right? 
And so, like, more people than not are struggling in their marriages. I'm not saying they're on the brink of divorce, but they may be struggling with selfishness. They may be struggling with, with, with just this argumentative spirit about divisions in the house, all these things. I would say more people than not are struggling in that way. And, and I'll tell you this, if, you, if you've been conscious for the last decade, you know that sexuality and marriage in our culture has been turned on its head, right? I mean, it's, it's like, it's crazy. But as I think about it, this is nothing new. It's been more than a decade. We've, we've, we have an enemy who's been trying to pervert what God has created in marriage since the beginning of time. And that's what we need to be aware of this morning. I'm not sure if, if, if anything has been under attack more than these two things. And so today, remember, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is addressing some specific questions about their faith that the Corinthians had written to Paul about. And Paul was writing a specific answer. So remember that as you read, context in Scripture is everything. And so remember that as we read. So, and I also want to remind you of another thing. God has a very clear and, and perfect standard for marriage. No matter what our culture tells us, no matter what our culture says, no matter how many arguments you have on Facebook, the standard for marriage is found within these pages. And our heart is that we would be a church that aligns with that, would affirm that, would hold one another accountable in that, and that we would walk in freedom in this book. Yeah. And our heart would be that the Holy Spirit would fill us in that, in that endeavor. And so this morning, let's look at the first nine verses of, uh, of chapter 7. And so if you're not buckled up, get buckled up. Um, so let's do this thing. You ready? Uh, it says, now in response to the matters you wrote about. Remember I said he was responding to something they wrote. In matters, uh, excuse me, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man to use, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Starting off with a bang, right? So this morning, as you read that, what you're seeing is the Corinthians were asking questions was, should I be celibate? Even as a married person, should I be celibate and just try to refrain from having sex, even in marriage? Should I, should I refrain from this to be more holy? Is the questions that they were kind of asking in that moment. But what does he say? He says, but... Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. What that means is Corinth, remember, was a, was a, was a very immoral city. Remember we said this many times over the last couple months, is that there were temples to Greek and Roman gods and where the, the rituals included a prostitution and different things like that. So there was so much sexual immorality among them in the culture. He says, since there's so much immorality, you need to focus. Focus on one partner for your whole entire life. And so, uh, what does it say? Verse 3, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together again. Otherwise, what? Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Anybody struggle with self-control in here? You, you're, yeah, you all do. Don't be lying. This is an interactive message, okay? I say this as a concession, not a command. Remember that we talked about that phrase. I said this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am. We believe that Paul was single. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. And I say to the unmarried, that's the widowers, the virgins, and the, and the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they shouldn't marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Y'all feel good about this so far? 
So the first thing I see in here, I have three or four points I want to give you today. The first thing I see is that biblical marriage guards us from sin. Biblical marriage guards us from sin. So sexual desire and intimacy are so integrated into our soul that what we do with our bodies deeply affects our soul. You see that? So they're so intricately integrated into who we are, what we do, the actions that we give, that it affects our soul. And so marriage, in part, as God designed it, it helps dealing with the overpowering passions of sexual desire. What you see um, in, what you see in ver- the last verse there in verse 9, it says, if you don't have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Now, marriage is not just for sex. It's just a, it's, it's in part, is God's design for dealing with, with passions of sexual desire. And so now, let me tell you this. Before I explain what this passage is saying and what I'm saying, I want to explain what I'm not saying. Can I do that? I'm not saying that wives are responsible for the sins of their husbands. And I'm not saying that husbands are responsible for the sins of their wives. You see that? So husbands, your, your pornography issue or your lust issue are on you, okay? Not on your wife for lack of intimacy. Can I say that? Yeah. Okay. Wives, your, your, your husband's lack of help around the house or with the kids or with an attention span that's this big, you know, is, is no excuse for withholding intimacy from your husband. I'm, I'm going to try to be an equal opportunity butt kicker today, okay? Okay? So, listen, okay? So as we look at this, Christ is sufficient to fulfill every longing of your heart and your soul. Christ is sufficient. And in marriage, in life, we look to him for satisfaction and for security. And if I'm looking to my wife for complete satisfaction and security, I'm going to come up short every time. Excuse me. If, If she's looking to me for complete satisfaction and fulfillment, she's going to come up short way more than I come up short. Okay? You see that? And so what we see is this text is not saying get married so you can have sex. Okay? It's not saying that. This, what this text is not saying, but what it is saying is sexual relations in marriage is a great asset in the spiritual battle against lust and adultery, but not an absolute cure. You see that? And so as we look at this, this is important. Only Jesus can cure sin in our heart. Only Jesus can cure the sin in our heart. Guys, there's a level of reverence in marriage where we are truly one flesh. There's a one flesh in, in Christ with our spouse that it guards us from the temptations of the enemy in the world. When we become one flesh, that's why God created it this way. When I'm one flesh with my spouse, it, it guards me, and it guards me from sin, and it guards her from sin. And I, we have to see that this morning. Remember, Paul, Paul is speaking sexually here because this was a question that Corinthians had. That's why he's bringing this up. So when a husband and a wife are both yielded to the Lord and when they seek to please each other in the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship, guess what? The marriage will be so satisfying that neither partner would think of looking elsewhere for fulfillment. We're going to look at mission in a moment, but being on mission together helps out with this too. But if I, I heard this say, I've heard this said many times and I've talked about this in marriage counseling a lot. Like it's not a 50-50 thing. Marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100-100. I give 100% to my wife even though, even though she may not give me 100%. She gives me 100% even though I may be a strong 75 sometime. Right? We both give 100 no matter what the other one does. That's what covenant is. I will even though you may not. No matter what happens, I'm going to do it. 
because I'm in a covenant moment with my wife, but most importantly, I'm in a, I'm in a three-way covenant with my wife and my Father God. And that's what I'm called to do. I'm called to worship God through the way that I love my wife. A Christian counselor, I'm not sure who said this, but I've heard it said many times. It says, there are no sex problems in marriage, only heart problems with sex as a symptom. You see that? There's no sex problems in marriage. It's heart problems. Sex is a symptom. And our heart would be that we would see that today, that sexual intimacy within marriage is a beautiful gift from God. It's an act of worship is what the Bible says. But as all gifts that God gives, guess what? We have an enemy seeking to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10. And this morning, I want to tell you that his desire is to pervert what God has made good. His desire is to pervert something in your marriage to make your marriage struggle. His desire is to pervert that thing that your wife said to do to cause insecurity in your heart. His desire is to, 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 to plant seeds in your, in your heart because your husband said or did something that you didn't like or hurt your feelings or created insecurity in you. His desire is to divide. But God's desire is to unite. God wants, to, God wants to use it. Satan wants to destroy it. So the, the world that we live in, I'm not sure if you know this or not, is full of sexual images. It's full of temptation, right? Anybody else can acknowledge that? It's full. Even if you're trying your best not to pursue sexual sin, I'm not going to look at that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to say that anymore. It pursues you, right? It pursues you in the things you watch, and the things you see and the things you look at, I mean, sometimes you're riding down the road, there's billboards. What the world is on that thing, right? Close your eyes, earmuffs, right? What's happening? And it's hard to escape it sometimes, and it's hard to escape it alone. And we're called to do life together. And if you're not at one with your spouse, it's hard to escape that. We guard each other from sin. I'll tell you this. Marriage and sexual intimacy at their best what it does is it creates a firewall between a couple and sexual sin in ways that other than just merely physical. It's a spiritual connection. And we shouldn't think of, of the protection from sexual sin. Let me hear this, please. We shouldn't think of the protection from sexual sin in our lives merely in terms of sexual relations as, as a physical release of some kind, of some, where, where like a pressure valve, if we were saying, if they don't get it here, they'll get it there. That's the wrong way to think about this. If you're thinking like that, you're, you're seeing this passage wrong, right? It's much deeper than that. Paul is going much deeper than that. And I think in our culture, our culture that we live in, which has made sex into a hookup weekend sport, it's very hard for us to grasp what Paul is saying. Listen, God intends in the intimacy of this physical union in marriage that something amazing, something glorious, something beautiful, something spiritual takes place. Remember I told you a moment ago, we, we reminded you that, that Paul is, is telling him to look at this through the lens of the gospel. So sexual intimacy, marriage, you should be able to, to, to feel there's something supernatural happening here because the Holy Spirit is indwelled both of us and we're experiencing a spiritual connection that somebody that is not saved cannot experience. And I'm saying, this is something beautiful. The depths of affection, the covenantal uh, intensification, the, the spiritual union that takes place in this, in this depth of connection, it makes pornography and adultery and lust more and more unthinkable, right? 
It makes those things unthinkable because that's the real glory of sexual relations in marriage. It guards us from sin because we see the connection between our spouse and our father God, and it brings us into this place of spiritual connectivity that makes me look at things outside of the world, and it makes me want to vomit because I know what's good, and it's my wife, and it's my father bringing us together because it's a picture of Christ in the church, right? That's the heart. Y'all done with this? Is this too awkward? Let's look at verse 10. How about that? Verse 10 to 16, it says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. Here we go again. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So the first, 12, or first 11 verses, we see Paul is talking to Christians who are married to Christians. The next five or six verses, seven verses, is Christians who are married to non-Christians. So people who are, were unsaved and one spouse got saved, now there's, a, there's an unequally yoked pair. And so Paul is addressing these. So well, let's look at what he says. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy by her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. The second thing I see here, the second point is marriage is not about you. And as I thought about that this week, like, I'm called, if my wife was not saved, I'm called to stay with her, give my life to her, model a Christ-like man to her so that hopefully she would come to our Lord. Hopefully she would get saved. It's a missional way of thinking about relationships, right? Wives, it talks about it in 1 Peter 2. Like you think about your, your life before an unbelieving husband. Some of you may be in this place today and you, you know, hey, my husband's not saved. Hey, my wife's not saved. Paul is saying, you know, scripturally, you may have grounds to leave, but he's saying don't stay because there, be, there may be an opportunity for that person to come to the Lord. Be missional in your marriage. Marriage is not about you. Marriage is not about me. Listen, Marriage is one of the greatest tools that God uses to sanctify you. Kids are first after that, I think, probably. But let me tell you, guys, we subtly come to believe, even in the church, that marriage is more about self-gratification and less about self-sacrifice. Can we say that? Like, can you hear that this morning? Like, we've kind of come to our culture. We kind of think, we've kind of like been tricked and duped into thinking that marriage is about me and my self-gratification. My wife's not serving me, so I'm going to be mad and put her at arm's length, right? My, my husband's not serving me or doing enough dishes or clothes, so I'm going to put him at arm's length. And I, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about his name being reached. It's about, it's about his name being made famous. And we've allowed our view of marriage, what's happened, to become influenced by the culture we live in and forgotten the biblical standards of marriage. And this is what Paul is coming against. And this is why the divorce rates, even in the church, are through the roof. We live in a divorce culture. You're not making me happy, I'm out. You're not doing it for me, I'm out. You're, you're not, you don't satisfy my desires, I'm out. We don't have sex enough, I'm out. I'm going over here. We don't do this enough, I'm out. You spend money this way, I'm out. And so we have these, and it happens, it spills over into the church. I don't like the way that pastor preaches, I'm out. I don't like the way the, the worship leader leads, I'm out. I don't like what they're doing in their ministries or their programs, I'm out. And we're called 
to be together, united, no matter what. And I'll say this, if my wife never again showed me any sort of sexual intimacy in my life, I'm called to stay and love her like she was. I'm called to stay and love her no matter what, because it's not about me. It's not about me, and it's not about you. We're called to give ourselves to them. But Paul points, and he paints a different picture of marriage for the Corinthians than what we see in our culture. You can look over in Ephesians chapter 5 really quick. Same author to a different church. Ephesians chapter 5, we talked about this a few series back. Verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And as I read that, and if you're looking at that as, as a woman and saying, it says submit to my husband, I don't like all that, I'm, this is 2021. Or if you're a husband and saying, I have to lay down my life for my wife and die for her, what does that mean? I got to lay down my life in front. What you're seeing is death to self, not personal gratification, is the central purpose of marriage in God's eyes. You see that? Death to self and not, set, not, not, not personal gratification is God's purposes in marriage. Because that is what reflects the image of Christ to the world. As we look at this today, we have to see that. But sadly, we don't see this lived out much among God's people. What we see played out in entertainment and movies, what, what our flesh craves is a marriage that simply fulfills our own desires and quenches our own passions. Can we, can, does anybody else agree, struggle with that? Or is it just a, yeah? And I'll tell you this is what I've learned in reading Scripture in marriage, God is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. God is more concerned with making you like him than he is with you being happy. You're like, some, of, some of you are like, whoa, what? God cares about your heart and making you like his son so that you can be a good representation to the world of his love and mercy and care. That's the heart this morning, guys. Let me tell you, most of the issues in this room or in this world in marriage, I would say 99% of the issues in marriage stem from unmet expectations of some kind. Can we agree with that? You have some kind of expectation in your marriage, right? And they're not meeting it, there's an issue, right? That's just humanity, right? And usually, I would say 100% of those expectations have nothing to do with God at all, but are more about our comfort and our own personal desires, Right? So that's what happened. So I started, I did a little study. The top three arguments in marriage, does anybody want to guess what they may be? What's the first one? Money, finances. You got it. That's right. It's number one. The number one issue in marriage, the one, number one argument in marriage is money and finances. What we're going to do with our money. What's the second one? Oh, this was a little bit different. Sex, affection, and attention. Sex, affection, and attention. So money and sex are the main two arguments in marriage. The thing that divides us the most are money and sex. It's like, what? The third one was time. You're not spending enough time with me. I'm not getting enough of your time. I'm not, so I think that can probably be lumped into sex, affection, and attention. But let me tell you this. Many of us are or have been so desperate, so desperate for that promise of romance 
or emotional connection that if we're not careful, we'll let our selfish desires lead our pursuit of marriage instead of God and his word. Right? And so as I think about that, we come to believe that marriage is, is only worthwhile when we find our perfect spouse for us. Right? We, we think that someone to meet our specific needs and, and completes us in our fantasies. Right? My daughter dresses up as a princess all the time, and she's, she's, she's fantasizing about just being a princess who rules the, the kingdom, right, or whatever. And so I think so at a certain age, you have a, you have a turn where you start seeing um, your daughters want to marry their dads or daughters want to, thinking about marriage and being a beautiful bride. And, and that's a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. Yeah. But Satan comes in and perverts that. And it turns us inward and makes us selfish. But what happens is he tempts us to look for that lost puzzle piece, that thing to complete us, the missing link, the other half of our heart, right? Some of y'all are like, fell up in my mouth, right? <laughs> Something to make us whole, to satisfy us in ways that we've created in our minds to be satisfied. But you may tell you what that is? That's an idol. Because Christ is the only thing that can do that for us. If you're trying to get your wife or your husband to be the missing puzzle piece or the missing link to make you happy or the other half of your heart to make you whole or to make you satisfied, you're worshiping an idol and not Christ. That's a hard teaching, but it's true. I've been in the boat. I know I've done it. Guys, Jesus leads us towards a life of godliness fueled by joy in him and him alone and concern for others, not personal gain, not personal gratification. And as you read this text, what you see in marriage, this plays out in things as small as the thermostat setting at nighttime. Right here, who's ever had an argument about that? Anybody? Everybody. Okay, a few of us. Or as serious as practicing patience with struggles with sexual intimacy. I'm not going to ask for a rest of hands in that. But you know what I'm talking about. The more we put sin to death in our life, the more we let sin die in our life, the more that we will experience the true joy of marriage as Christ designed it. And I want to tell you, John Piper, probably a guru on marriage, he says, true satisfaction in marriage comes when we reflect the true nature of the one that satisfies us completely and eternally. True satisfaction. Who wants true satisfaction in their marriage? Every one of us. It comes when we reflect the true nature of the one that satisfies us and com completely and eternally. That means I'm a servant to my wife and not somebody who's begging to be served. Jesus, he gives the best example. Colossians chapter 2, you can, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, you can see a perfect example of that. He gives the purest example of the life that we are to live in marriage, showing that we are most fulfilled when we use our lives to serve rather than to be served. Right? It's hard, man, to do that. But that's the life we're called to be. If you're saying, hey, Michael, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. This is what you're called to. And many of you in this room are struggling right now with satisfaction, fulfillment, because you're not living this way. You're trying to say, I follow Jesus, but you're trying to set the ground rules in your own life. And that's just the truth we see in Scripture. People have been doing it for ages. God's given you freedom, but you choose to step back and try to do it your own way. And God's calling you into freedom, and he says, come, follow me. Do what I've done. This is what covenantal marriage is all about. I'll do it even if you won't. Christ still died while we were still sinners so that we might be saved. I'm still going to go to that cross even though you might not follow me. So can you say that in your marriage? I'm still going to go to that cross even though you might not fulfill me in the way that I want you to. I'm still going to serve you 
I'm still going to give you my all, even though you might not be who you call me to be. This morning, this is how the world will see Christ in us. This is what Paul is saying. This is how the world will see Jesus in you. This is how the world is going to do it. This is how we, the church, should challenge each other to live. This morning, if you're in a connect group, if you have a brother or a sister in this room that, that's struggling in their marriage, guys, we're not called to tolerate sin. Guys, sin, a tolerate, tolerance is the opposite gospel, uh, is the opposite of the gospel of Jesus. We're called to call each other to higher ground, to live, to live in a life of a servant. Let's skip over to chapter, verse 29. We're going to read verse 29 to 35. Now he's turning his attention to unmarried Christians as well. So what you're seeing here is um, we're not quite to the unmarried Christian part yet, but we're getting there, so just hold on real quick. Okay, we're good. It says, this is what I mean. Brothers and sisters, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. He's not saying you should act like you ain't married, so don't go there, okay? <laughs> those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they didn't own anything, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. So that, to summarize what that means in layman's terms, what that means is don't live like the world. Don't view marriage like the world. Don't view finances like the world. Don't view your job like the world because time is limited. Christ has come. The end is in sight. So live in light of that in a way that you're able to be different in front of the world. Don't treat your wife or your husband the way the world would treat your wife or husband. Don't spend your money, your time, your treasure, your talent in the way that the world would do. You're not trying to blend in. You're trying to stand out and be set apart and holy. And so today, remember that. Verse 32. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. That's not, don't, we're going to talk about it in a second, so don't think marriage is bad. Marriage is good. On the surface, it may look like Paul is saying marriage is bad. He's not, okay? <clears throat> we're going to get in that in a second. Uh, the married, unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the world so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm not saying this for your own benefit, not to, be, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. This is my main point this morning that I want you to see. My main point off of this text is biblical marriage is always missional. Biblical marriage is always missional. If you're a Christian and you're married, you should be missional through your marriage. If your wife or, your, or your, your spouse is not your biggest ministry partner, you're missing it. You're missing the point of biblical marriage. Our culture has taught us to be married, to, to receive something from each other, to, to make one another better, to just exist in the world. God has put you together to be missional. And we've already established that marriage is not about you and it's not for you, but it's, it's a mirror that reflects Jesus' sacrifice of our sin. But when you focus your marriage on God's mission, guess what? Your marriage gets better. Can we agree with that? Yeah. Like Two important things in this passage is what we see. Paul says that marriage can be a distraction from serving the Lord. <coughs> I'm like, Paul, wait, what? So what happens is marriage, marriage done in the way of the world divides our hearts. So if you're trying to say, hey, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, in everything in my life, but your marriage is, is structured after the world, you're going to have divided interests. 
You're going to try to be living one way over here and one way over here. You see that? So we, we, and when we're single, we don't have to have a spouse to consider in that way. We can focus all of our attention on serving the Lord. We're not double-hearted or double-minded. The second thing I see is marriage can be a doubler. Marriage can double your influence in the world as a Christian if you're focused on Jesus in your marriage as well. If your marriage is aligned with what Jesus has, you're going to be so focused and driven, you're going to be very effective. If both of you are serving the Lord, if both of you want to serve Jesus first, then marriage can make you better at serving God. Do you see that? So the question should be, how can you serve the Lord the best? And I want to tell you something this morning. If you can serve the Lord the best alone, stay alone forever. Y'all, that's not how we do things in America, Michael. That's not, this is biblical. If you can serve the Lord better with a spouse, get married. That's what we're called to do. But our culture, our Christian culture in this country has taught us to compartmentalize the mission. I'm a Christian. I'm married. I have my job. I serve once a month over here. I do this. God has called us to, to, to bring all that together and to, and to use our marriage for the mission. And I want to tell you this morning, if, you, if both of you make it your goal to live on mission, you'll double your efforts. You, you can cheer each other on. You can encourage each other and make each other better. And what Paul does in verse 29, what does he say? He says, this is what I mean. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. What he's doing, he's saying the time is limited in the sense that Jesus' second coming is almost here. He's already come, now he's coming again. He's bringing out that urgency in how we ought to live as Christians, whether single or married. So what we're seeing here is we have to stay on task, be on mission together as a married couple. Paul is saying our marriages have one purpose. You know, some of y'all are like maybe let down the air, will let down of yourselves. Because let me tell you, if that's the case, maybe we need to get right with the Lord this morning. Marriage has one purpose, to be on mission and bring glory to God. That's it. And I'm telling you this morning, that's biblical marriage. And what we see, biblical marriage was meant to magnify Christ to the world. Let me tell you, if your marriage is, any, is about anything other than the mission of God, then you missed the point. I'm sorry, that's just biblical. So many people miss the point of marriage. It's for the mission of God and for your sanctification, for God to make you more like Christ. So my question for you this morning, my question for me is how is your marriage making disciples? How is your marriage together, your union with your spouse, how is it making disciples of all nations? Is it making disciples? If you do have a desire to be married, marry, this, marry with this in mind. If you're in here this morning, you're single, ask yourself that question. Can I make disciples better with this person or without this person? And that's a big question. It, will we make disciples better together or apart? Guys, the apostles who followed Jesus for three years, they were left scrambling until Matthew 28. Jesus reveals himself, goes into heaven. Jesus left them with a great commission. What did he say? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And today there's so many like debates and all these things. Like, what is a disciple? How do you make a disciple? What's effective discipleship? All these things. It's simple. Let make Jesus known and show people how to follow him. That's it. That's it. Jesus' followers organized their entire lives around their mission. 
Everything they did was organized around their mission. And a lot of times this has been preached where these are some kind of superstar Christians who live this life in a certain way and we can never attain to that. But that is not the way the Bible says it. We're called to live just like that. Everything they did, everything they lived for was organized around making disciples, helping people find Jesus and helping people follow Jesus. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean meeting in a coffee shop once a week for an hour. It means doing life together, showing how you live and how you follow Christ. Life on life. And sometimes we have our schedules so packed, even in marriage, that we don't have time to disciple anybody. My desire is that we would clear our tables and clear our schedules and we would invite people around our table in our homes to, to disciple people because that's what God has called us to do. It's too much? Okay, good. Let me tell you, th this wasn't a compartment that they left open. I'm going to leave this compartment open for worship services and Bible studies on Thursdays and Sundays. This is my Bible study time. This is my Jesus time. I got to work during the week. I ain't got time to think about that. It's who they became. When I, when I read First and Second Timothy, I see Paul talking to Timothy like he's a new man. Like he has a new identity, a new reason for living, a new, um, a new focus in his life. This becomes, we talk about this all the time, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Some people that are in the church today have been made new, but they're still living old. They're still living in their old nature, their old sin nature. And God has called us out of that. But what you see in verses 29 to 31, it points to a new way of living in a new identity, in a kingdom mindset where I'm powerful because I have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me, and I'm supposed to live that out in front of the world so that they can see Jesus through me. It's not about me. It's not about my wife. It's about us living together and making disciples so that the world can know Jesus and that I can see him on the throne one day worshiping him. That's the heart. If we're living for anything else, we're missing it. And this is not one more thing that you need to do. Guys, if you're hearing this and you're feeling like, man, I don't know about this, that's either one or two things. One, you're still trying to be religious and trying to check a box. Or two, Jesus is convicting you to come onto this higher way of living. And our heart today is that we would come to this place and it's simple, it's free. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing more to do. Jesus has already done it. We're called to surrender, to submit, and to lay our life before him and say, God, whatever you've called me to do, I'm going to do it. But so many people are scared to pray that prayer because it messes up the life they built. And so today we have to remember we have a Lord who directs our life. And I believe we have the same calling as the disciples did. We're called to make disciples. We're called to organize our lives around God's mission. <coughs> Excuse me for a second. I'm, my throat's getting a little weird. So my question is this. This might be kind of harsh, but I feel like it needs to be brought to light. If, if the church is not making disciples, if people in the body, the, the organism, the church, not the building, the people, if the people are not making disciples, what does that mean? I mean, have we given into some sort of cultural Christianity? I think yes. If you look at any church in, a, in America, you can see there's a lot of consumerism in the church. But could it be that the reason many people in the church don't make disciples is because they aren't disciples? Because you think about this for a minute. What does he say? Jesus says what? My sheep know me and they know my voice. Right? My sheep know me and they know my voice and they do what I say. They follow me. And so this morning, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're saved or you're not saved because I don't know. Only you know that. 
But if you've struggled your whole life to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a disciple maker, I'm not a disciple maker, you're not giving your life to see that happen, there's at least a reason to question where you're at with the Lord. A reason to ask the question to say, Lord, where am I at? Show me where I'm at. Because the mission as Christians, the mission of God is our top priority. Single or married, our mission is to make as many disciples as we can before you die. The mission as Christians is our top priority. It should influence everything about us, where we live, where we work, how we spend our money and our time, everything. It should be about everything. So we should be consistently and constantly asking, how can we make more disciples? You can ask Savannah. I talk all the time. Hey, is our life structured in a way where we're making disciples? Are we doing this? Are we, are we seeing people come to Christ? Are we seeing people shepherd in a good way? Are we seeing uh, people take next steps of their faith? Are we seeing people saved and baptized? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But are we being faithful and administering the gospel to people in a way that's clear and effective and righteous? It's a good question to ask yourself. I don't know. We should be constantly asking how we can make more disciples. And let me tell you, this may be a new idea for you. Maybe this has never been preached in your life or the churches that you've attended. Maybe making disciples isn't a priority for you. Maybe it's on your radar, but it's something you've never done or prioritized because you haven't understood what making a disciple is. We believe a connection that a disciple is someone who is a missionary. They're, 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 they're free with the gospel. They give the gospel away. They're a worshiper. They're a servant. They're a member of God's family. They're a church member. They, they serve the local church. And they're a steward of God's resources. Those five things is how we identify a disciple in this place. So are you a member? Are you a member of God's? Are you an active member of the church? Are you giving to see this ministry is pushed forward? Are you, are you serving its people? Are you serving your community? Are you a good steward of the resources that God's given you? Are you a missionary? Do you share the gospel? Are you a servant? Do you serve people? So there's the question that we need to ask ourselves so that we can give it away to other people. So Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They've walked for three years with the Son of God. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. They've seen all these things happen. He, he has his glorified body. He's standing before him. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Please picture that in your head for a second. There's nothing, there's no, there's no inch of eternity that God does not have control of. You understand that? And he's called you his son or daughter if you're a Christian. And the enemy is trying to suppress you and make you think you have nothing. But God has called you to live a life of freedom, making disciples of all nations. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, what does that mean? It means I'm leveraging my life. I'm leveraging my marriage. I'm, I'm leveraging my children for the gospel. And what that does, if, I, if I'm leveraging my life in my marriage, guess what? It creates supernatural unity in my marriage. Like Supernatural. How many fights do you think you'd have if your sole focus in your marriage was making disciples together? And your children, and your church. Unity in marriage is the byproduct of living on mission together. You want to you have a biblical marriage? You want to have a biblical mindset in marriage? Unity in marriage is the byproduct. You don't even have to work for it of living on mission together. Are you living on mission in your marriage the question you need to ask yourselves. Guys, marriage is for the mission. Marriage is for the mission. Mission is, a, mission is the purpose of marriage. But here's the problem. Can we get real for a minute? Before we move on, many people idolize marriage, and it takes them off mission. Can I get a witness on that? I'm telling you right now, man. I'm telling you, I, I've done it. 
I tell Savannah all the time, like when we first got married, I was, I was, I was an idolater. I, I worshiped marriage because I had this picture of marriage and I thought it was supposed to be like, and guess what? It wasn't like that. So it messed me all up. And I was for a few years there, I was kind of lost in the whole thing. God showed me what it looks like. Many people idolize marriage and it takes them off mission. Let me tell you, it's so easy to idolize marriage, but you can't worship an idol and Jesus. Because what happens is idols never create peace or unity in the heart of a Christian. It creates confusion and regret and depression and oppression. And that's where many Christians in our culture are at. Maybe you've heard this said, or maybe you've said it yourself. Many people argue all the time, will I know my spouse in heaven? Anybody, you know? Uh, well, I know my spouse. Well, will we be married in heaven, right? Uh, I've even heard it says, I don't want to go to heaven if I'm, if I'm not married to my spouse. I'm going to tell you right now. That just shows that you've created an idol out of your spouse and not a missional partner. And this morning, this reminds me of a story in Matthew when the Pharisees tried to trip up Jesus on marriage in chapter 22 of Matthew. You don't have to, you don't have to turn there. Just look on the screen and you can write it down in your Bible, Matthew 22, 23 to 33. Since that same day, some of the Sadducees who say they were, they say there's no resurrection, the, the Sadducees didn't believe the resurrection, came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and to raise up offspring for her, for, for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died, have no offspring. So he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second, also to the third, and on to the, all the seven. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in. Whose wife will she be in of the seven? For they all had married her. Jesus answered them. I love Jesus so much. I feel like, you know, this, I wish I could be in this moment with him. I'm like, yeah, that's right. It's like, it's like, he says, he says, you're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I'm like, Jesus, come in a little easy on him first. You know what I mean? No, he goes straight for it. I love it. This is, a, this is an excuse for, for not having soft preaching, right? For in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are giving in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken of you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is, not the, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. They're in heaven, there'll be no marriage because there'll be no need for it because the eternity and Christ and all of his glory will be revealed. The thing you live for in your marriage will be a reality. And a lot of people are, are duped into thinking they have a low view of God into thinking that if I'm not married in heaven, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to tell you right now, if you, that means you do not know Jesus of the Bible. Because anything else in, anything else in heaven does not need, is not going to make you happy other than Jesus and being in his presence and glorifying his name for all eternity. That's it. That's all there will be. We need to elevate our view of marriage and mission and, and evaluate and see if we realize that marriage is a tool for mission. I'll tell you this. We tell our children all the time, I've been guilty of this, even though they're three, that they need to go to school and graduate, right? They need to go to college and graduate. They need to get a job and make tons of money. They need to find a, a smoking hot spouse. They need to get married. They need to have two and a half kids, and they need to retire with a bunch of money, Right? That's, that's pretty much what we say, right? Guys, remember we talked a few, a few weeks ago about John Piper's sermon about seashells? These are seashells. When I come before God, am I going to hold up my money and say, God, look how much money I had at retirement. God, look how many kids I had. Look how many things I've done. Look all these. No, you're going to say, God, here's a life that I lived in submission to you. 
Now, if you do all these things in submission to Christ and God leads you to these things, do it to the glory of God because it's what he wants. But my question is do it in a way that honors him. But my question is this. What if all of this is wrong? What if, what if we're forcing our children to think about marriage as a merit badge of honor when God has, may have called them to a life of singleness? What if God has called them to be a missionary, be a missionary in another country, not married? And we're saying, get married, get married, get married, have kids, have kids, have kids. What if, what if our pressing and pushing for marriage and grandchildren is sinful because it goes against what God may have planned for their life? What if our teaching our kids to idolize life goals and achievement instead of worshiping God in a life of obedience? What if instead of being a voice for God, we've become a voice for the enemy in our child's life? That's a question that we need to ask. And this is biblical questions. Like, what if instead of following the cultural norms of our day in marriage, we say, follow Jesus and do what he says? Instead of doing that, raise, raise your child in a way where he loves or she loves Jesus so much that he honors or she honors him before any man or woman. And if she or he does get married, it's because they can serve Jesus better together. And what if they go and they're single for the rest of their life here, abroad, anywhere, they can serve Jesus better? What if we celebrated that instead of cursed it? Today is important. We need to see that marriage in the Bible is missional. If you're married this morning, how are you living missional in your life? So question, how are you living on mission? Let's look at verse 32 and 35 again in 1 Corinthians as we get ready to close. The band can come back and lead us in one more song. Verse 32, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are, interests is, what is the world that's wrong with my mouth? His interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but the married woman is concerned about the things of the world. How can she please her husband? I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. So the last point for my single people in this room is that biblical singleness is missional. Biblical singleness is missional. But on top of that, biblical singleness is a gift. It's a gift. It should not be looked at as a curse. If you're single in this room, there are some unique dangers in singleness, especially in unwanted singleness. And I'll tell you today, Satan loves to deceive. He loves to discourage. He loves to, to, to press down the single people in the church and derail them from where God is leading them. <clears throat> but God wants to use you your faith, your time, your singleness in radical ways right now, just as you are, just right now. He wants to use you where you're at. Because I tell you, biblical singleness is a testimony to the sufficiency of Christ in his mission. It is. Biblical singleness is a testimony to the world of the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough. This morning, if you're single, if you're married, is Christ enough in your heart? He, I'll tell you, he is let me ask you a couple of, of questions today. What if you being married is not what God wants in your life? From a worldly view, that breaks my heart thinking about that, right? But from a heavenly view, it glorifies God and it draws me closer to my Father. 
What if you could be missional with your life in a way that you couldn't be with a spouse? I've been friends with countless people who are single who've said things like, if I had marriage, blank, if I could get married, blank, if I had this, if I had a spouse, blank, then I would be happy, right? That's the end goal. Then I would be happy. But what does God want? He wants your holiness, not your happiness. Holiness. But if you're serving God, if you're loving him, if you submitted your life to him, your holiness is going to be your happiness because you're serving and honoring the Lord. That's what the Bible says. But what I've seen with these friends, these friends were willing to make sacrifices and water down the mission of God in their life just so they can get married. They made compromises in their life. They made compromises because they wanted that emotional connection so bad and they weren't willing to get it from the Lord. It shows that your treasure wasn't in Jesus. It shows that marriage was an idol. This morning, I pray we have an altar full of, of idol worshipers laying down the idol of marriage, laying down the idol of singleness, laying down the idol of your own life, being in control of it. I pray that we would submit that to the Lord and, and walk out our life in freedom with submission to him and everything he's called us to do. Guys, this is what our culture has done to our singles. This is what our culture has created insecurities in them that we can't understand. And instead of preaching the sufficiency of Christ to them, stewarding them well, we've always asked questions like, why aren't you married yet? Don't you have kids yet? Don't you want kids? We ask questions like that and it creates insecurities. It creates struggles in their life. It opens doors for the enemy to, to, to hurt. Instead of asking that, why don't you say, hey, who are you discipling right now? Hey, are you con have you considered being a missionary? Have you considered being missional with your life, going to plant a church with Patrick and Catherine? Have you considered being a, a missional-minded believer? Have you thought about that? And I want to tell you, to close today, I want to give you four things as a single that I want you to consider with your singleness. The first thing, consider being a goer. Consider being a goer. Can you, you can use your time and your life wisely by spending it on the mission field. Consider going. Let yourself be sent out to an unreached people group or a church planning team somewhere. Use your time wisely. The second thing, practice selflessness while single. Because I can promise you it won't get any easier when you find a spouse. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This will only get harder when you get married, so practice now. Be mindful of the needs of others, especially those people in the church. Consider contributing to the needs of the church, serving, giving, going, get invested in the life of the body, engage, serve people, love on someone new. The third thing is spend time with married people. This might get awkward for some people. Sir, so spend time with married people. Single people need example of, of, of flawed but faithful marriages. Single people need examples of some people who are messed up but they're married, right? How many people got some jacked up marriages? We all do, right? We all, we all struggle. I mean, we're all selfish in some way. Spend time with people so you can see that played out in a Christian way. Look for opportunities to be a regular part of a married couple's life and family. And then the last thing, the fourth thing, is while you wait, hope in Jesus more than marriage. While you wait, hope in Jesus more than marriage. If you'll do that, I promise you, whether you stay single forever or whether you get married, you will be in the right path to be faithful to God in your life. Because I'll tell you this, focused on the harvest that God has called you to go after and you're, and you're bound to find a helper. If you focus on the harvest of seeing disciples made, you're bound to find somebody running alongside of you that naturally fits your life. 
So find someone who is after the mission. So whether you're single or married this morning, be on mission. And so I'm going to tell you this morning, it, I told you a moment ago, like maybe some of the reasons why we don't make disciples is because we're not a disciple. We don't hear the Lord's voice leading us and guiding us. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've been married and maybe you have been worshiping the idol of marriage. Maybe you've been selfish instead of selfless. Maybe you've approached marriage in a way that honors you and not God. Maybe you're single in here and you've made compromises in your life where you've given yourself over to lust or pornography or passions of your flesh or, or whatever it may be. I pray this morning that you would come to this altar and release that because God has given you a life of freedom through Jesus. This morning, if you don't know the Lord, if you've never heard the Lord's voice in your life, the Bible says that my sheep know my voice. They know me. If you haven't heard his voice leading and guiding you and gently calling you to himself, maybe this morning is the time where you come to faith in Christ and say, hey, I believe in what God has done for me on the cross of Jesus, and I want to live my life in surrender and submission to that. Some of you have heard that message so many times it's become numb. I've heard the gospel so many times it's just, it's just numb. I pray this morning as we spend this last little moment, moment with the Lord that you would remember that the bloody Savior on the cross was done for you and done for me so that I can live with him in eternity, free from sin, free from shame, free from death. And I'm called to pass that on to my brothers and sisters in this body, but also outside of this body. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, I pray that you would come to faith in Christ. The Bible talks about it in Romans that, that, that God made him who knew no sin. Jesus did not know sin. Came down to earth, lived a perfect life that you should have lived, that you were called to live because of your sin, you were marred, you were unable to do it to be sin on your behalf. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin, to become sin, to be the object of sin, to be the object of God's wrath. So God's wrath that was poured out on Jesus was meant for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. What kind of crazy transaction is that? To me, it's wild. To him, it's love. This morning, I pray that you would come to the saving knowledge of who Christ is. If you know this morning, like, hey, Michael, I've never surrendered my life to Christ. I may have given him lip service, but I haven't ever lived it out. Find a prayer person on this wall and come give your life to Christ. Say, hey, I need Jesus. Find me. I would love to pray for you. Come to this altar. If you're struggling in your marriage, find a prayer person. Let's pray over you this morning. Let's quit playing games with the gospel. Let's quit playing games with the church and be the church that the world needs that Jesus has called us to be. So as I pray, you come. Don't wait. Don't play anymore. Let's, let's get this thing right. Let's get this thing right. Let's get on mission with our marriages. Let's get this thing right. Get on mission with our singleness. And let's be a church that glorifies and honors God. So let me pray. As I pray, you come. God, I thank you. I love you. I praise you for who you are. I praise you for the gospel. I praise you for marriage and for singleness. God, I praise you for your mission. God, thank you for letting us play a small part in your glorious mission. God, thank you for letting us be a part of what you're doing in this world. Father, I pray for the person in this room that is far from you. God, I pray that you would bring them to you, Father, that you would grab their heart this morning, Father, and save them. Father, I pray for the marriage in this room that has just been become just monotonous over the years, that you would breathe new life into them, God, to make them missionaries for your kingdom. Father, I pray that you would let them live the rest of their lives out together on mission for you, God, focused, laser-focused on making disciples of all nations, starting where they live, in their neighborhoods, in their homes. God, to see your name made famous, that that would be the motivation of their life, not making money, not making much of themselves, not making much of their house, but making much of you, Father. 
Lord, this morning I pray for a spirit of surrender to fall over this church. I pray for a spirit of revival to fall over this church. God, I pray for the Spirit's power to do its work in our lives. God, I pray that we would not we would not quench the Spirit of God anymore in this place. But God, that we would live with open hands and open hearts to whatever you want us to do. God, we come before you, God. We, we ask you to forgive us for being unfaithful, God. We want to be faithful, God. We want to have more faith. We believe, but we want to believe more. God, we trust you, but we want to trust more. God, we love you, but we want to love you more. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.